And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you've dealt with with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each in the house of your husband. So she kissed them and lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, surely we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back my daughters, why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn back my daughters, go, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, would you wait for them till they're grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. Now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And it happened when they came to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? But she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned with her. Sorry, so Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Well, we're starting a new sermon series on the book of Ruth. So it's a short series, four weeks. There are four chapters. We're going to look at a, a chapter apiece. And just as a matter of interest, how many people know this story, have read it before? Yeah, no, quite a few of you. Um, can I encourage you, if you've read it before, read it again. It doesn't take long. And if you've not read it, find some time to read it. I think it takes 19 minutes or something like that. Um, just four chapters. doesn't take very long. It's an amazing book. Um, actually, in many ways, it's probably one of the first stories I really knew as a child. And part of the reason was, um, was I was around about five at the time. My, my father wrote a, a musical called Ruth. And at the age of five, I had the grand park part in the, in the play of, I think it was a Limelech, who was a farm worker. No lines, didn't say a thing, just stood there with my stick. Uh, my acting career began then, and it probably finished then as well. And my older sister, three years older than me, her name is Ruth, 
played the main part of Ruth and she's the complete opposite, opposite very dramatic, has got an amazing voice and uh, did it justice. Um, so I kind of knew about Ruth's story from an early age. But actually something also happened at the same time. Um, I was quite an adventurous um, young five-year-old and um, on one occasion, uh, Dad was taking my older sister and brother uh, to their swimming lessons at the local swimming baths and said I could come along and just paddle around in the, the shallow end. And so there I was in my swimming shorts and my red rubber ring and uh, Andrew and Ruth were having their, their lesson and no one noticed this little five-year-old run along the side of the pool. It was in those days, you know the swim pools that have the really tall um, diving boards? You know those concrete diving boards? Are they 10 metres, 15 metres? Something like that. Um, I had absolutely no fear of anything or, or anyone. So there I am, running along with a little rubber ring around me, climb up the, the stairs to this uh, diving board, the top diving board, run straight over and jump straight in. And uh, of course, the inevitable happened. The rubber ring that was around me stayed on the surface and I didn't. I couldn't swim. I went down, I was obviously kicking, but you know, up, down, up. And actually it was my sister who swam over, grabbed the rubber ring and gave me the lifeline and stopped me from drowning. What happened to the lifeguards? I don't know, but they didn't really do a great job and it was her that pulled me to safety. And I think in many ways, this is what this story is about. I mean, there is the romance of, as we'll see later on, Ruth marrying Boaz. And it's a, it's a lovely story, just reminding us of God's love for his people and his love as we share that love together. But actually, the story is about the main character, Naomi, holding on to her lifeline. Again, if you like that rubber ring of salvation, and in doing so, drawing out a message for all of God's people. Those who are drowning, he is the God who saves. Those who are hungry, he is the God who feeds. Those who are poor in spirit, he is the one who blesses. Those who mourn, he is the one who comforts. Those who are empty, he is the one that fills us. And so as we go through this beautiful and powerful story, I, I hope we will discover New things about, if you like, the story we are living in day by day. But more than that, know the God we worship. He is the God who saves. He is the one who feeds the hungry. He is the one who comforts. And he fills us with his wonderful, glorious presence. Let me just give a bit of background context to the story of Ruth. It's, it's what's known as a short Hebrew, uh, a Hebrew short story. Um, we don't really know anything about the author. Some Jewish tradition uh, thinks it may be Solomon as the writer, but the dating doesn't match up to that. But whoever it is, it's a story that's told with great skill. As one commentator puts it, an exquisitely wrought jewel of Hebrew narrative art. And 
I don't know whether you like kind of literary criticism and all of that kind of stuff, um, but I'm sorry to disappoint you. Over the next four weeks, I'm not going to be going into all the symmetry and brevity and all of that kind of stuff that literary critics like to do. You're not going to get any of that from me. But this story set in history speaks to our story set in history today. So it's around about 1100 BC. Anyone around there to remember it? Yeah, just a few nodding. (laughs) In the dark days of Judges, where as the book of Judges ends, in those days Israel had no king and everyone did as he saw fit. I mean, can you imagine a society like that? Everyone did as they saw fit. There are communities, societies, things going on in the world where people just do what they want to do, regardless of anybody or any value or any standard. And yet what's interesting here is the focus is very much on village life. So the nation of Israel is in a mess. There's religious and moral deterioration, national disunity, foreign oppression all around Although actually at this time, there was a period of peace between Israel and Moab, which was unusual. And to cap it all, there's a famine. Could it get much worse? But you know what the narrator focuses on here? It's not those things that are going on, if you like, outside. He brings it in to what is going on in the life of a small village of Bethlehem. And actually more than that, he brings it in to what is going on in the life of one family. And I think that's so significant, you know, for us. So often when we look at what's going on around there, we kind of forget actually who we are and our own lives. And there's a theological thread here that not only runs through this book, but throughout the whole of scripture, where every single person matters to God. We all matter to him, whether we know it right now or not. Whether we value that truth right now or not. The small matters to God. We matter to him. Let me just read the first five verses of the Bible. If I can So this is the first five verses. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. The name of the wife was Naomi. The names of the two sons were Marlon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab but remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left and her two sons. Now they took wives of women of Moab. The name of one was Orpah and the name of the other was Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. Then both Mahalon and Kilion also died. So the women survived her two sons and her husband. I mean that's the context of this story. The first five verses just really setting out, if you like, a tragic start. So not only is there famine in the homeland which results in this family from Bethlehem 
moving to a foreign land and becoming effectively refugees. And as we know today, and certainly the case then, the reality of this meant that they had no rights or status. They were people with no blood relationship or tribal affiliation. And so they were totally dependent on the mercy and goodwill of the Moa people. But not only that, when they get there, there's death in the family. First, the the husband of Naomi, Elimelech, who dies soon after they arrive. Then after about 10 years, the death of two sons. What a desperate, tragic situation that actually couldn't really get any worse. But what we see and what the writer reminds us is these were three ladies who mattered to God. And that God knew them by name. And he knew where they were from. He knew them by name. I mean, so often we miss the significance of names. But in the Hebrew scriptures, names were incredibly important to the Lord. Often reflecting the relationship with him. And so the father, Elimelech, his name means my God is king. My God is king. And Naomi's name means good, pleasant, lovely. See, God knew this family by name. And despite all that happened, he didn't abandon them. He was still king over their lives. Despite all that they were experiencing, his goodness is overflowing. There was always that lifeline for them. And not only that, he knew where they were from. Again, we often miss the significance of this. They were not just people from Bethlehem, but they were from a certain family, from a certain area of Bethlehem. They were Ephrathites. That's really difficult to say, actually. Ephrathites, I think, in Bethlehem. A small village in Judah, a small part of a small village in Judah, one family, but actually we know this family would produce the most famous Ephrathite of all, David, son of Jesse. This family mattered so much to God. And it's the same for us. We matter to him. I'm sure we've all been struck by the faces that we see on the news. Archie Battersby and her family. You know, the, the, the conflict that's starting again in Israel and the Gaza strips. And, you know, when the news show faces of people who are mourning the loss of their family. We've seen it with the Ukraine. You know, these are not just faces. They are people who matter to God. His heart is crying out for them. As they mourn, he mourns. As they grieve their loss, he is right there with them in the midst of it. You see, the things that are going on in our lives matter to God. Whatever they are, the pains, the hurt, the challenges, the, t- the, the times when we feel alienated, the times when we feel empty, all of this matter to him. And the truth is, God is with us. He doesn't abandon us. He is king. The truth is, that lifeline is always there for us. And his goodness is overflowing. He knows us by name. He knows where we're from. We matter to him. And always will. But there's a second thing that comes out along with that. And that is radical commitment. 
When you assess Naomi's situation, her life, life was in a mess. And I suppose in some ways, the question that's raised for the reader as you read this is, what's going to happen to her in a patriarchal world? A world where all the privileges are invested in the male part of the family, and here were three ladies on their own. What's going to happen to them? And then what we see as well is that news travels fast. And they hear that back in Moab, that the Lord had come to the aid of his own people in verse 6. And so Naomi Naomi decides to return to her homeland. So she and her daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah, prepare to leave. But as they set out on this journey, Naomi becomes kind of like intrinsically aware of the negative implications it could be for these two young women. And that actually if they came with her, as she says in verse 9, they would renounce any hope of finding rest in the home of another husband. So she tells them to stay. She wrestles with them about not joining her. Three times she tells them there's no point in going with her. And eventually Orpah assents, kisses good goodbye and returns to her polytheistic society. But Ruth refuses to go. Clinging to her mother-in-law, she replies with words that go beyond any bonds of racial origin or national religion. Your people are my people. Your God is my God. Where you go, I will go. Where you die, I will die. You know, these are amazing words. They demonstrate a radical commitment, possibly more than anything else that we've seen in the Old Testament, maybe with the exception of Abraham when he was asked by God to sacrifice Isaac. I love what one commentator puts. He says this, Ruth stands alone. Just put yourself in her position. She possesses nothing. No God has called her. No deity has promised her blessing. No human being has come to her aid. She lives and chooses without the support group and she knows that the fruit of her decision may well be the emptiness of rejection, indeed her death. Not only has Ruth broken with family, country and faith, but she's reversed allegiance. A young woman has committed herself to the life of an old woman rather than the search for a husband. Incredible commitment. And not only that, but Naomi doesn't even seem to appreciate the significance of her commitment. That in Ruth, she actually has a lifeline. I mean, she says in verse 21, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. And yet, despite all of this, we see in Ruth's commitment three things. Choice, surrender, sacrifice. Her choice Where you go, I will go. Where you stay. The Hebrew word is like where you spend the night. I will stay. We see surrender. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Nothing is withheld. All is surrendered. Ambition and time is just laid at the foot of Ruth. And we see sacrifice. Where you die, I will die. The point of dying to self in order to live. And of course, these attributes are like, they foreshadow that total commitment 
that we see in Jesus, that Jesus was looking for in his disciples, that he looks for in us. Choice, surrender, sacrifice, choice. I will follow you, Jesus, no matter what. Surrender, I give you my whole life. You are Lord and King of everything. And sacrifice is what Paul talks about in Romans 12. Laying ourselves as living sacrifices which are holy and pleasing to God. This is our acceptable act of worship. And this is the life Jesus is calling us to. Individuals matter to God. Commitment needs to be radical. But there's one last thing I want to draw in this chapter, the first chapter. And that is there's always hope. There's always hope. Just say that with me. There is always hope. You see, as Naomi returns to Bethlehem, with all the excitement, her response to the people brings out loss and emptiness, even to the point of changing her name to Mara. Can you imagine doing that? Her name Mara means bitter. Naomi, love, pleasant. And she changes her name to Mara, which means bitter. She fails to see two signs of hope. And of course she does what we so often do, wrestle with God, even blame him. Say to God, how can you allow this to take place? Lift our complaint to him. As she says, bitter God has made my life, empty God has brought me back. But she doesn't see the hope that is there and the lifeline that is before her. She fails to acknowledge God has not brought her back empty. Ruth is right there by her side. She's not alone. And what she'll discover is in Ruth, there's a lifeline. It's like Ruth hands her that rubber ring and she's able to grab hold of it and come to the side and know the blessings God has. But also there's something else that's significant. Right at the end of that chapter, we're told the barley harvest was beginning. There was food to eat. But again, more than that, this is the spiritual food because the Holy Spirit was at work in her life and in Ruth's life and actually working in and through the community to bring life and to bring hope. I don't know about you, but in my experience, I would say especially these last 20 years or so, those moments when I have felt absolutely empty with nothing to give, I have discovered again and again the way as if the harvest comes. I can't explain it any more than actually giving specific examples. And the problem with giving specific examples when you're in that deep place of pain is as if they're you know, it's, it affects other people around you and the causes that have brought that pain. And I don't want to do that, pay any justice to that. But I know in those places where there's been deep hurts and pain, it's like the harvest has gone. It's like God places around and has placed around me people that are going to help me feed of the presence of God. They're going to be those who help me hold up my arms. Those who are just uh, there providing for the need, offering the lifeline. It's like God brings the harvest at those points when we're empty. 
and have nothing to eat or nothing to give. And it's not that we should pray for these emptiness moments and despair in order for the harvest to come. That would be crazy. But it is when we're in the midst of these challenges and difficult times that we look to the Lord of the harvest and we can trust in his faithfulness that he will come and he will bear fruit. See, as the curtain comes down on this first act, I just want to draw us as we finish to two responses, if you like. I think the first is, and I, I want to say it in the simplest of terms, because so often we miss the truth. We all matter to God. See, Naomi needed reminding. She hadn't been abandoned. She hadn't returned to her home empty. There was a harvest waiting for her. Just think of the the prodigal son. See, his intention, if you like, of returning was to return to the father, if you like, empty from what had filled him. He left a son and he thought he'd come back a slave, a servant. But actually when he was embraced in the father's arms, he discovered again how much he mattered to the father. Can I encourage each one of us to know this truth? You matter to your heavenly dad. He loves you. He's given everything for you. He's not abandoned you or let you go. He is right there with you. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, you know, we're all whoever's, (laughs) but we're whoever's with a name. And we're whoever's with an origin and a source and a background and a home. Whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He's done everything for us to know the fullness of his love. Yes, the devil comes to try and kill, steal and destroy. And kind of like fill our minds with, uh, with lies. We're no good, we don't matter, all of this rubbish that so often we allow to infiltrate our minds. And I know I have done at different points. But the truth is, Jesus came in all his fullness that we might have life. And life in him is knowing his love in all its fullness. Life in him is knowing our identity, who we are. Life in him is knowing the fullness of his presence with us. Can I encourage us to know afresh? We, you, matter to your heavenly dad. But then, if you like, more than that, He wants us to be filled with his presence. Paul writes in Ephesians 5, be filled with the Holy Spirit. We can't do this alone. And God doesn't want us. He's made it possible for us to know the fullness of his presence as we live in accordance with his plans and purposes. Will you allow him today to show you how much you matter to him. And will you let the Holy Spirit come and fill you afresh? Let's stand together.
Just let him come. Holy Spirit, we love you, we worship you. You are so welcome in this place. Father, we're sorry for those times when we doubt your love for us. We doubt how much we matter to you. We throw out accusations and questions that, as if you don't care and as if something that we've done is the block. And yet you tell us again and again through your word, you love us. And I just want to encourage each one of you here, just let him tell you afresh. Let the Father speak, hear his voice. And in the beauty of his words, simply, I love you. Let him tell you. Come Holy Spirit. As we hear this truth, come and fill our hearts afresh with your presence. With your presence. We love you Jesus. And we worship you.